up here. Uh, it's good to be with you. Again, my name is Marshall. I will be preaching on the passage that was just read. Huh. Apparently, my eyesight has gone down since the last time I was in this pulpit. I might have to use these today. I've never done that. Uh, we'll just see here. First time I've looked here. Uh, it is good to be back with you today. We begin a new sermon series. I am... I have a lot of feelings about this series. Uh, I'm excited about it on the whole. Uh, The series is titled Amazing Grace, the story of Jacob and the book of Romans, the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. But let me pray. Today we start the story of Jacob. Jacob. Let me pray for us as we begin this sermon in this series. God, we come in here uh, this Sunday morning and we bring our stories with us. We bring our lives with us. We bring all of the complexities. We bring all of the complications of our lives. And as we meet this morning, this man called Jacob, who is complex, who is complicated, who is conflicted, we pray that in the story of his life, you would teach us something about our own that we could walk out of here better understanding your love for us and be changed by that love, by that grace. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Meet us, God, in the teaching of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jacob. Now, on the surface level, Jacob is an exciting story. It's a little bit like a country and western song. There's lion and crying. There's hunting and smoked meats. There's overbearing mothers and passive fathers. There's double dealing. There's stealing. There's even wrestling. But on a a more somber level, it's more like a southern gothic novel. There's sexual assault. There's polygamy. There is attempted murder. There's a faked death, and yes, there is slavery. But on an even deeper level, the story of Jacob is filled with complex characters, and no one, maybe no one in Scripture, is more complex and complicated than Jacob. On the one level, and this attracts us as North Shore people, he is a hard-fisted deal maker. He seizes opportunities like the story you just heard read. This is a guy, Jacob, who makes his own breaks. And if others get a little bruised in the process, well, so be it. What of it? Along the way, Jacob tricks and lies to his father, Isaac. He cheats his brother and steals from his brother, Later, he will pull a fast one. Later in his life, he'll pull a fast one on his uncle. But Jacob is complex because along with that naked ambition, that deal-making, that hard-fistedness, that apparent aggressiveness, there is also this insecure side. He is easily manipulated. He is conflict-avoidant. In a story we will come to next week, his mother seems to control him, telling him what to do, where to go, and what to say. Later in his life, he will have two wives, and he will let his wives decide who sleeps with him each night. He's a man who cries a lot. Later in a story uh, that we may or may not look like, his daughter is violently, sexually assaulted. 
And he basically does nothing that we can see about it, leaves it to his sons to handle. Eli Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor and astute observer of human nature, says this about Jacob. There's the sense with Jacob of being a big child, yearning for love and protection. And that assessment starts to make a little more sense when you dig a little deeper beneath the surface with Jacob. Jacob was not liked or loved by his father. And he passed that favoritism down, by the way, to his children. It's like it's the only thing he knew, so when he has children, he has a favorite son that he loves more than all the rest. He can't help but pass it down. And there's also this. Jacob suffers in his life. He presents himself at the first as the one who deceives other people. But through the course of his life, he gets deceived, right? His uncle cheats him and tricks him. His own sons lie to him and functionally steal his favorite son from him. His favorite wife, his second wife, dies prematurely and tragically in childbirth. And he raises children who hate one another. This is the story of Jacob. If you think about it, here is a man with broken relationships with his father, with his brother, with his uncle, with his first wife, and ten of his children. And yet for all of his shortcomings, yet for all of his shortcomings, Jacob's had, had, his life had moments that just soared. I mean, he wrestled with God. It says, he says, I saw the face of God. And at the end of his life, in one of my favorite passages, is Jacob, this old man beaten down by life and suffering, will take his hands and lay them upon the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, and bless Pharaoh. Jacob. Jacob. And there are very few people in all of Scripture who are as honored as Jacob. I didn't do that. I wish I'd done the search. But I, because Jacob's name becomes Israel. I bet if you took Jacob and Israel, those two names, they probably occur more than almost any name, maybe all names in Scripture. Jacob is extremely honored. God blesses Jacob. God loves Jacob. As I mentioned, later in his life, God will change Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. Which is to say this man in this story is thousands of years old, 3,000 plus years old, and there is a modern state named after him. Imagine that legacy, 3,000 plus years later, okay? But you know what? There's several reasons I want to study Jacob. As, I mean, this is as much for me as it is for you. And there's one thing about Jacob. Jacob irks me. He irks me. Maybe because I am an oldest son. I am an older child. I'm the oldest. So I've always had a sympathy for Esau. Now Esau's a knucklehead. We're going to see that this morning. But Esau tries, right? And at the end of the story, we'll get to this in a few weeks, Esau is forgiving. He's magnanimous towards Jacob who has stolen and done these terrible things to him. And Esau just seems to be thrown in the dustbin of biblical history. I mean, what does the prophet Malachi and the New Testament writer uh, Paul say? And he's, Paul is quoting Malachi when he says this. It says, Jacob have I loved, God says, and Esau have I hated. Really? I mean, this not lying, conniving, sniveling Jacob? Jacob is loved? Jacob offends me. He irks me for a couple of reasons. One, he's just so conniving. He's just like a snake in the grass. But ultimately, what offends me about Jacob is the grace of God, it is the grace of God. Friends, grace is so offensive. 
And that's what I want us to spend our time on this fall. Is the, it's the name on the door, so we better understand it. And grace is so misunderstood. Grace is so often conceived of as kindness or tolerance or even graciousness or acceptance or some broad banner, you know, love. Love everybody. You know, the Beatles, right? All we need is love. That's not biblical grace. Echoing a pastor named Tully and Chavidian, this is the definition. And I'm actually going to add to his definition. But here's what grace is. And this may not sound offensive right now, but by the end of this sermon, I hope it offends you some. Grace is unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God who slowly, usually painfully, by the power of that same grace, makes people more like himself. Unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God who slowly, painfully, by the power of that grace, makes people more like himself. So this fall, amazing grace. The first half of the fall will be the life of Jacob, which are an, this story is an illustration of grace. The second half of the fall, which is Romans 1 to 8, will be an explanation of grace. So illustration and then explanation. Now you might wonder, Marshall, if Romans, is, and in Romans really is, it is the, we, we wouldn't understand Jacob without Romans. I mean, Romans is the great explanation of God's grace, his amazing grace. And without Romans, we wouldn't understand Jacob. And you might wonder, Marshall, if Romans is such a great explanation of grace, why don't we just go there and spend all fall camped out understanding God's grace in Romans? Well, the reality is, is that God uses these stories to teach us, to form us, And I believe God wants to use this story, the story of Jacob, to shape our imagination, how we think about others, how we see ourselves, and how we see our God. So today's passage, in many ways, is a perfect introduction to the life of Jacob and understanding him. I simply want us to see, we're just going to kind of, I'm going to introduce you uh, this, I hope you're with us all fall, because I think this is going to be a fun series. But today I just want you to see the family background, kind of what made Jacob, Jacob. I want you to see the character of Jacob, and then finally I want to point us forward to the grace of God. So the family background, Jacob's character, and then the grace of God. First, the family background of Jacob. Now to understand Jacob, like you have to understand anyone, You have to understand their family and their family history. Speaking of Southern Gothic writers, William Faulkner famously said, and this is true for every person in this room, not just Southerners. Uh, You can tell by my accent. I'm actually not from the South, but I'm from close to the South. Um, William Faulkner said this, the past is not dead. The past is not even past. Right? This is super important to understand. So let's look at Jacob's family tree. We could look further back, but I want to first look at his father and his grandfather. Verse, chapter 25, verse 19. Look with me. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Now, I'm going to teach you a little foreign language here. Hebrew, the word for generations of. These are the generations of. This is a very famous word. It actually sounds kind of fun to say. Toledot. Say it with me. Toledot. All right, Toledot, okay? Uh, Now, this phrase is used ten times. Whenever you see these are the generations in the book of Genesis, uh, this is is used to organize the book. It's used ten times in the book. This Toledot formula. These are the generations. 
Uh, in years past, we're actually kind of slowly making our way through Genesis. We kind of will do a series on Genesis, and then we'll go back to something else. And we did a series on Genesis 1 to 11, the creation of Noah. We did a series on Abraham. Now we're doing uh, the series of Jacob. We'll come back and finish uh, some other time. But this phrase, these are the generations of, Toledot, it's a way of saying this is a different episode but it's connected to all of the others. In this case, what it's saying is this is the story of Isaac, whose dad was Abraham. Now, this is Jacob's dad and Jacob's granddad. Now, I, this, I don't know how to avoid this. There's a lot of names. I'm going to try to make it clear, uh, but there's a lot of names to keep track of here. So let me, let's see what we can do here. Let's talk about first Jacob's granddad, whose name is Abraham, Okay. Now, Abraham is this great hero of the faith. He is the person who is called from a place called Ur of the Chaldees. He moves over a thousand miles to establish God's people. He's this great person of faith. He lives this enormous life. The whole middle section of the book of Genesis is devoted to the life of Abraham. He is the great man of faith. And the pinnacle of his life is actually a point that is not so good for his son. Because the pinnacle of Abraham's life is when God commands Abraham to sacrifice his only son, his teenage son, the boy we know as Isaac. And so he goes forward with it. He takes his son, Abraham does, he takes Isaac, he goes so far as to bind his son, put him on an altar, and right before he's about to sacrifice his son, God stops him, okay? And says, I know that you trust me, I know that you believe in me. And he released the boy, sacrificed the goat. That's the story of Abraham and Isaac. Now we focus on Abraham's faith. Imagine if you're that boy on that altar. Imagine if you're that boy on that altar. That all your life you knew your father was willing to kill you. What kind of father does that make? What kind of father does that make? Because that's Abraham. Well, let's look at Isaac, that boy on the altar, who one day grows up and becomes the father of Jacob. He becomes the father of Jacob. And it's interesting, there's kind of four main patriarchs, they call them in the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, four of them. The one who gets the least attention is Isaac. Isaac, I mean, Abraham's great, Joseph leads this amazing life, Jacob leads this amazing life, but Isaac, he just gets a little bit of attention, okay? He doesn't get much. He has very little impact according to the author of Genesis. Have you ever known an average man or an average woman who had a great dad or a great mom? How are they tempted to treat their own children? Sometimes it's rough. Well, in the case of Jacob, we know, and Isaac, we know. Again, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, okay? Verse 28, it says, Isaac loved Esau. He did not love Esau. Jacob, all right? Isaac is not fond of Jacob. His own dad is not fond of him, and there had to have been a cost for that. So to understand Jacob, you have to understand his father and his grandfather, but you also have to understand, looking at, we're, again, we're looking at the family tree. This is actually important for all of us to do. But you look at the family tree, but it's not just Jacob's father and grandfather, but it's also his parents' marriage, right? Look with me at verses 20 and 21. It says this, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paran Aran, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Okay, and if you would flip over to verse 26, it tells us that when the children were born, Isaac was 60, which is to say that for 20 years, 20 long years, Isaac and Rebekah struggled with barrenness, with infertility, the silent epidemic even in the 21st century. 
You know, and sometimes fertility issues bring a couple together. You've kind of got a united cause. But sometimes, sometimes fertility issues, infertility issues drive a wedge, a hidden wedge in a marriage between a couple. And it's so painful, infertility and barrenness, it's so painful that oftentimes that pain spills out into other relationships. I mean, even in other aspects of life, if you ever waited on God, maybe it is for a child and infertility or for a job or for a spouse or for a prodigal child to come home, it is painful to wait on God's answer. And oftentimes that pain spills into other relationships. And in this case, it spills into the relationship of Isaac and Rebecca. Now, nonetheless, Isaac does pray for his wife, and the Lord answers. She conceives after 20 years. But as Sinclair Ferguson points out in his sermon on this, on this great, great sermon on this passage, he says, we assume that the answer to prayer, when God answers a prayer of, you know, a baby, I mean, this is great news, right? We assume that an answered prayer means an easy life. But sometimes, friends, an answered prayer means a more difficult life. It means the storms are coming. In this case, that is exactly what happened. For Isaac and Rebekah, the storms begin during pregnancy. It says, verse 22, look with me, the children struggled within her. They struggled so much that she praised the Lord. Isaac praised, then she praised. Verse 23, this is what the Lord says to Rebekah for her prayer. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The younger shall serve the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so begin the struggles. And it's here in verses 27 and 28 that the family history becomes chillingly dysfunctional. Read with me verses 27 and 28. I'll read it. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, on the surface of things, of all the, patri- of all the people in the book of Genesis, Isaac and Rebekah have the best marriage. They're both recording as ha- having prayed. They both pray to God. We just saw that. They're the only marriage in Genesis that's not polygamous. They're just committed to each other. There's no other spouses. They're on the- they, on the appearance, are an obedient, faithful couple, but there is something sinister within them. There is something sinister that could not be seen which is to speak to the, the, the dimensions, the pervasiveness of sin. And see, friends, to understand God's grace, to understand, and for grace to become amazing in your life, you have to see this, the depth, the pervasiveness, the dimensions of sin, because there is something dark and twisted in Jacob. I mean, it is, it's so hard with these names. There's something so dark and twisted in Isaac and Rebekah. And friends, there is something dark and twisted in you. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The heart is desperately wicked. And there are terrible consequences of this favoritism in Jacob's own life. His parents favor one. One favors one. One favors the other. Right? It leads to this rift between the sons. But as I've already alluded to, Jacob must think this is normal because what does he do when he becomes a father? He shows favoritism. And it, loses, it results in him losing one of his sons for many, many years. Disastrous results. We'll come to that story later. 
Which is all to say that Jacob, Isaac, and Rebekah, like all of us, we all come from dysfunctional families. Raise your hand if you think your family is not dysfunctional. No hands in the air. No hands in the air. And if you feel bad about your family, cheer up. Consider the Jacobs. Two things about this. Two things about this real quick. You cannot run or hide from your family of origin. You can't. Now, you might have to cut off relations, but you cannot run away. And in some way, even if it's a broken relationship where you don't speak, you must learn to love and forgive your family of origin. You see, God created families. He values them, but because he values them, our enemy attacks them. And it is the place where so often we have to work out our own salvation. Okay? God gives us families. And it's a place for us to work things out. And here's the deal, friends. He gives you the perfect family for you. Now, I know when I say that, it is very hard for some of you to hear. Because some of you come from abusive families. Some of you come from families where things were unspoken. And you think, oh, well, Jacob didn't, wasn't loved by his daddy. Well, I had even worked. And that's true. I know. But God in his sovereignty gives you the perfect family. You might have to totally cut off relationships with that family. You might. That's a, that's a scenario. But it is the perfect family for you. God gives you your family, and he wants you to work through whatever it is, no matter how broken it is. So oftentimes we want to use the dysfunctions in our own family to justify our own brokenness. Well, did you, you see what happened to me? Look what I've got to deal with. Friends, God has given you a family just like he gave Jacob a family. Jacob's daddy did not love him. Jacob's daddy did not like him. That is not good. That is not okay. That is sin. That is brokenness. But at the end of the story, God will use that very brokenness to make Jacob who he has called him to be. You've got to learn to love your own family, even if it means never talking to them again. Forgive your parents somehow some way. And that brings me to the second thing. After loving the family that God has given you, all of us at different levels, we have been wounded by our parents and we have failed our children. There's nobody in this room for whom that is not true if you're a parent and all of us are children. We have been wounded by our parents and we have failed our children. Well, cheer up! God can still use you. In fact, he uses those things. Jacob was a wounded son who failed to love his own children perfectly. And yet God worked in him mightily. Do you start to see how grace is offensive? It is offensive to us, okay? And that's just the family background. We hadn't even got to Jacob yet. Let's get to him. Let's look at Jacob's character. Verse 24. When her, his mother, when the days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out, holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Now, the word Jacob means grabs by the heel, which is another way of saying he cheats. That's his name, cheater. Cheater, dinner's ready, come on home. Come on home, cheater. That was his name, okay? Which is to say he comes out of the womb crooked. He comes out of the womb a deceiver. There's something about original sin here, okay? I always tell people who say they don't believe in original sin, go work in the nursery. 
hold an infant, oversee toddlers playing. Okay, we all come out of the womb broken and twisted, as does Jacob. He comes out literally a cheater. And in verse 27, his internal deceit, his bent nature comes to the fore. Here is the story. I will not read all of it. Esau, his older brother, has been out hunting. Jacob has been home cooking stew. Esau comes in from a long, hard day, and he is famished. And he asks his brother for stew. Now, a quick word, a little aside. This isn't a sermon about Esau, but Esau is a compelling figure in many ways. And it, it, in the original, in the Hebrew, it's like he, Esau sputters. He's like, give me the red. It actually says it twice. Give me the red stuff. Give me the red stuff. He's overcome with his hunger. He's impulsive, Esau is. He's flippant. He's crass. He loves and embraces the present and the tangible at any cost. He cherished Esau did momentary pleasure over what matters most. You see, Esau does not know how to rightly value what matters in life. And let me just say as a warning, we're not talking about Esau, but be careful of your appetites, of what you long for. Here it's an appetite for food. But so many things, these things, they can break our values meter so we value what we long for more than God himself, more than the good things. It might be food, it might be pleasure, it might be approval, it might be wealth, it might be sex. Be careful of your appetites because they can run over your life if you're not careful. But let's look at Jacob. That's where the story really is. All Jacob has to say, the only thing he has to say is, here's some food. He's cooked a stew, his brother's famished, all he has to say is here is some food. But Jacob is one of those people, and all of us know, maybe you are this person, for whom every encounter is an opportunity to spin the tables to his advantage. Every, you know people like this, maybe you are this person, beware if you are. Sometimes we call them narcissists. He's one of those people who can spin the tables to his advantage. And so verse 31, he immediately says, sell me your birthright. He can see the desperation in Esau. He knows he has the advantage. Sell me your birthright. Esau is so hungry and he values, he values his value meter is so broken. He says, I'm about to die. No, he's not. He says, I'm a, hey, that's, you know, he's so emotional. I'm about to die. <laughs> he had not had a meal, you know. What is that to me? Feed me, he says. Jacob goes, he makes him swear. Swear to me. Esau agrees. Esau gets his dinner. Jacob gets the birthright. Now, what is the birthright? The birthright is the status of being the firstborn son, which mattered a ton in this day and age. It meant headship of the family, and later in Israel, so likely it meant a double inheritance. Head of the family and a double inheritance. What does Jacob really want? The birthright's not the issue. What does he want? He wants status. He wants authority. He wants wealth by any means necessary. And he's willing to connive and cheat his own brother to get it. He comes off as manipulative, selfish, cunning. And notice this, though. He doesn't outright lie and steal. He's just driving a hard bargain, right? He doesn't outright lie and steal. He does kind of cheat him, but he doesn't outright lie. But getting ahead of ourselves, we'll look at this next week. What is here and kind of just like an out, just kind of cheating kind of spirit? Next week, it becomes outright lying and stealing. He becomes a liar and a thief in next week's story, which is to say, keep a close watch on yourself. Sin, if not repented of, escalates. It's just, it's just a white lie. It's just a, just a little white lie. You know, it's just, my, it's just my tax return. It's the government's money. Nobody, they're not going to miss my few thousand dollars. 
right? It's just a, you know, just, I just glanced at pornography just a little bit, not, you know, just not too much. Sin, if not repented of, escalates. Friends, there is something in you, every one of us, that has the power to ruin your life, to undo it. Earlier in the book of Genesis, God says to a man named Cain, he says, this is true for all of us, it was true for Jacob in this moment, sin is crouching at your door. Sin is crouching at your door, its desire is for you, but you must rule it. Sin is crouching at your door, and you must rule it, or it will destroy you. You see, there's something in you that sin wants to take over and burn your life down. It's crouching at your door. For Jacob, it was a longing for status and wealth. What is it for you? Now, th- th- remember what the sermon series title is? Amazing Grace. Like, where is that? When's that coming, okay? Dysfunctional parents, lying and cheating protagonists, where is the grace? How does this help me? Well, first of all, it's all over the place. A couple of things here. First of all, I don't know about you, and, and some of you are, are, are here investigating Christianity, but this is unusual in religious literature. Don't you love the Bible, It is not flattering in the supposed heroes it portrays. I mean, this is one of the great heroes of the faith, and this is how he's portrayed, right? Okay? Any religion that keeps parading the faults of its main inheritance, what is that supposed to say, right? I mean, think about this. Jacob's every major failure is recorded. Every major failure. I think that helps us to be honest about ourselves and to stop being Spiritual heroes. Stop trying to be spiritual. Friends, I've said this before. I think one of the hardest things on the North Shore of Chicago is to be vulnerable, to be honest about our weaknesses, our brokenness, and our sin. And I'm begging you to read the story of Jacob and start to be honest first with your spell, your, yourself and then with those closest to you. The Bible is honest through and through. But it doesn't just stop with honesty, and it points to and highlights the grace of God. Let me quote a guy I never thought I'd be able to quote. He's one of my heroes. Never thought I'd be able to quote him in a sermon because he's pretty obscure. Gihardis Voss. Don't read Gihardis Voss. You will not. Don't do it. Okay? Uh, But this is what Gihardis Voss says. Jacob's reprehensible features are rather strongly brought out. This is done in order to show that divine grace is not the reward for, but the source for noble traits. Grace overcoming human sin and transforming human nature is the keynote of the revelation here. End quote. Remember the definition of grace. Unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God who slowly, usually painfully, makes those people more like himself. God who is free and unobligated to Jacob. He's not obligated to Jacob. He unconditionally accepts Jacob right? Who is undeserving. In fact, he's like, whatever the opposite of undeserving, he's, he deserves God's wrath. But he slowly starts to change him, God does. You see, friends, this is ultimately not a story about a dysfunctional family or a broken man, a deceitful man. This is a story about the grace of God, a God who grabs hold of Jacob. Jacob is this man that, this is what's so compelling to me about Jacob. When we meet Jacob, he is just tied up in knots on the inside. He's full of fear and anxiety, twistedness, lying, cheating. And God grabs a hold of him and not only forgives him of his sin, but changes him, grows him, matures him. And slowly by the grace of God, that knot inside of him, is, it, takes year, it takes decades to loosen that knot. 
This is one of the great stories, maybe the great story, maybe David, but this is one of the great stories in all of God's word about grace in action. How God takes a lying, conniving, broken person and makes him great. At the end of his life, preview of coming attractions, he is reconciled to his sons. Most of his sons are reconciled to each other. By this time, God has changed his name from Jacob. He cheats to Israel. He strives with God. He strives with God. At the end of his life, as I've already said, he lays his hands on the most powerful man in the world and blesses him. He starts his life as a deceitful heel grabber. And he ends his life laying his hand, that same hand that grabbed the heel. He lays that same hand on the most powerful man in the world and blesses him. God held on to Jacob and made him great. Jacob gives me hope. I got to study Jacob. I have to understand what happens here. How does this man that I resent become this man that is so great and full of life? Right? He compels us. He compels us. And how is Jacob changed? And I close with this. Well, in a story that's ultimately about families, Jacob is saved and changed through his own family. Because Jacob's offspring, his great, 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 great grandson is a man named Jesus. And Jesus one time said this, you did not choose me. You didn't choose me. I chose you that you should go and bear much fruit. And Jesus was also God. And before the time, he chose Jacob and said, Jacob, I choose you that you would go and bear fruit. And how does that happen? You see, Jacob's offspring, Jesus, went to the cross. And for the twister, Jacob, and for the twister that you are, he was twisted. His own body was twisted on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, forgiving your sins and mine. The one who was, he, he paid, he was twisted in body to pay for our twistedness inside. But it's not just there. It doesn't stop there. Jesus was raised to new life. He was resurrected. And that is the power for us of a changed life. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection forgave and changed Jacob. And Jesus' death and resurrection can forgive and change you. Because even though it was a forward-looking faith, Jacob was by faith united to Jesus. And friends, in Jesus, you can be forgiven. You can be accepted. You are enough. And in Jesus, you can change. And in Jesus, one day, you will be all that you were made to be. Amazing grace in the life of Jacob. I can't wait. Let's pray. Our great God, you are so good to us to give us stories like Jacob. People we can relate to who are broken and hurting and suffering who you grab hold of and don't let go of. And God, my prayer for myself and for our church is that you would continue to grab hold of us, pursue us, change us by your amazing grace made possible by your son in whose name we pray. Amen.